Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Song of Solomon, somewhere in the middle of your Bible there. It's in the section of the writings. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Before I read this text, let us go again to our God, asking for His help in understanding the passage. Father, You say in Your Word that... All of your word speaks of Christ, your Son. Help us to see him in this text very clearly, that we might worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, truly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, hear now the word of God. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is a litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh, against terror by night. King Solomon had made, his, made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the 1920s and 30s in Harlem, New York, that area experienced what's called the Harlem Renaissance, which was an important period of black or African-American history. And during this period, many writers, artists, actors, celebrities emerged into the limelight. One such person was Langston Hughes, a man who wrote Harlem, a dream deferred. And many of us in high school were exposed to this poem, had to read it, got to read it. And it goes like this. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore? and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? His major message was that when dreams are deferred or delayed, they can have a profound and often negative impact on the dreamer. Now, he felt that his own literary genius was kept segregated from that of his white counterparts. He's not wrong, of course. And having high expectations or exalted dreams that end up unfulfilled 
can lead the dreamer down a dark road of depression or anger or bitterness? Well, this morning, as we continue our Advent series, Christ in the Writings, we see a dream that to the dreamer was deferred or delayed longer than she desired. But it was eventually fulfilled. And her heart's anticipation, her soul's longing, typifies the church's fervent longing for Christ. The message of the text this morning is that Christ the King meets our heart's longing in the fullness of time. Look again with me at verse 1. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. As we jump into this book at chapter 3, it is helpful to have in the background what this book is about. It's about a man and a woman rejoicing in their marital relationship. Which relationship points us to the relationship between Christ and the church? Some will approach the Song of Solomon and say, this is only about, this is, this is only an allegory about Christ and his bride, the church. Others will say it's only between, it's only about a man and a woman, and they got married, and the romance is beautiful. It's not either or, it's both and. This is, these are real historical people that God uses to speak of the greater marriage between Christ and his church. In chapter 1 of this book, the bride, whoever exactly she was, was concerned about her appearing and standing before King Solomon. And his words in that chapter gave her confidence to approach him. In chapter 2, a wall separated the bride from the king, but the king graciously invited her to come away with him. And now in chapter 3, she seeks him by night. She rises to find him. Before she finds him, she is stopped by the watchman. Eventually, she does find the king, takes him, and leads him to her mother's chambers. We see in these first five verses the theme of a search, the bride-to-be, her search. We see in the first two verses, this is a, a very steady search. So let's begin to examine the bride's search for her royal groom. I just read verse 1, and verse 2 says, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. So this bride finds herself in a position that resonates with many women today. Woman knows that God has created her, has designed her to be man's best friend, to be man's greatest companion, to be man's greatest help and support, encouragement. And as young ladies come of age, they keep their eyes peeled to see whom they might help, to see with whom they might have this intimate companionship, whom they might encourage. And for some, this search comes early and with relative ease. Perhaps this person is a childhood friend or a high school sweetheart. Maybe a college cohort or a co-worker or maybe a church member. But for others, this search takes a lot of time. And even after much effort, yields very little, if any, fruit. Perhaps as she was growing up, she had very few friends. Or all the good friends she had left her. 
Perhaps all the high school boys were jerks. A not uncommon reality. Perhaps you didn't attend college, or everyone at work is already married, or there are no church prospects. And perhaps she turns to other options. She goes to a different church, or she finds a respectable Christian dating app. In any case, many women know how important it is not to give up hope, to be content, but also, if that's the Lord's will, to have that hope fulfilled one day, to keep on searching, to keep on looking out for a possible guy that would be fit for marriage and worthy of a marriage with her. Because she's, of course, not going to settle for just any man. And we're not told how this bride and Solomon meet exactly. But once they did, or soon thereafter, it is clear that she has been longing for the wedding day. The betrothal period is nice, but that's only to lead to, oh, to, to, lead to a wedding and a long-lasting marriage. And she wants that life to begin sooner than later. And in this way, the bride pictures for us Israel's millennia in waiting for the Messiah. I hope you see that, because what is the Old Testament but the people of God's steady search for the long-awaited Messiah? You ask Eve when her serpent-crushing offspring would come, and perhaps she would tell you, well, it's an Abel, but then Abel was murdered. Perhaps she would tell you it's found in Seth. Seth was great, but not good enough. Would the Messiah be found then in Noah, whose name means rest? Perhaps this is the one who would bring rest to her and to the world. No. Or what about Abraham, the promise that he would be the father of many nations? Well, we know how he would sometimes mess things up, that he would be a father of faith, but he wouldn't be the one to give the faith. He wouldn't be the one to die for the people. What about Jacob? Jacob, the, the leader of the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. No. You look closer, and maybe the Messiah is in the person of Joseph. You read Genesis 37 through 50, at least the way I read it, I don't see any noticeable sin that Joseph committed. Maybe he is a good picture of the Messiah. Maybe he is the Messiah. But no, he is not. Still, there is no messianic salvation yet. Well, surely then it would be Moses, right? After all, he is the mediator of that old covenant. He's the one who brought Israel to a place of rest, though he did not enter the promised land. He brought them to it. He was the giver of the law. He mediated for them. But no, Moses was not it. And still Israel looked and kept looking. And at times she gave up hope and she turned to idols, even in Moses' day, even in Aaron's day most tragically recorded in Exodus 32. But then Joshua comes, a new Moses, the one who would actually bring the people to that place of rest. Maybe he is the one. After all, his, word, his name means the Lord saves. It's the Old Testament version of Jesus. Perhaps just, maybe Joshua, he is the one who is the Messiah. But no, 
What about all those many messiahs, all those judges used by God to rescue, Eve, to rescue Israel from those evil men? As great as some of these men were, and even the unofficial judge, Boaz, even as great as he was, they all died. They all left Israel without the Messiah. And still, Israel kept trucking along, usually with a couple of flat tires, searching for the Messiah. And so you can imagine the joy in their hearts when King David came on the scene, can't you? Here we have, after that reign of King Saul, and in light of David's military success and his devotion to the Lord, here's a man after God's own heart. Surely King David would not fail God's people, right? But he did. Yes, he was faithful, but he was not the Messiah. Yes, he pointed to the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah. Although David wasn't the last of the kings, he was certainly the brightest royal star in the galaxy. And it seemed to be all downhill and dark from the point of his death. But through the prophets, the candle led the way in the valley of the shadow of death. Snatches of prophetic light would shine from this prophet or from that, even as Israel would face Assyrian domination and eventually Babylonian exile. There was enough hope to keep the searchlights on, projected outward. But when? When would this Messiah finally come on the scene? How long can Israel, the bride of God, hold on with hope in search for the royal groom? It's a steady search, but it has to be fulfilled sometime. And we see in the next verses 3 and 4, that this steady search is a satisfying search. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So here, the bride keeps looking and is stopped briefly by the watchman. Now, these watchmen were the official gatekeepers, to make sure that there would be peace in the city. And they find her running about in the city at night, feverishly looking for her beloved. Where is he? Where can he be found? This is the one whom my soul loves. Where is he? She gets up. She does something about her restlessness. Previously, she was on her bed restless with her whole heart occupied by thoughts of her beloved. But she rises, does something about that restlessness, and she seeks him in the city. But she can't find him. She can't find the one whom her soul loves. And she's detained temporarily by the watchman. You remember that scene in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. If you haven't seen that movie, it's a good movie. Not quite as good as the first one. Still good. You remember that scene when Mrs. McAllister is frantically searching for Kevin in the big city of New York. She walks down the streets, running down the streets, asking these passers-by, have you seen this boy? Have you seen my son? And they don't give her the time of day. And then she sees two police officers in a police car. She wants help from them. And you might remember the police officer says, did you file a report? Yeah, well, then trust us. Okay. What would you do, she says. What would you do if you were in my spot? 
probably the same thing that, that you're doing right now. But he was committed to this idea that she could not find him. He says that he was a needle in a haystack. It's a big city. You can't find him. Maybe we can find him. We have more resources, but you can't find him. But of course, she was not detained for very long. She continued to pursue him, pursue Kevin. The watchmen offer the bride here no help. It's a big city, ma'am. Sorry. I don't know where your beloved is. I don't know where the one you know, to whom your soul clings. I don't know where he is. I can't find him. I know what joy filled her heart when she did find him. He was once lost to her, but now he is found. And oh, what joy filled the heart of Mary, did it not? But when she held baby Jesus in her arms and the shepherds shared with her and Joseph the angelic announcement, the text says that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And oh, what joy filled the hearts of the wise men when They sought the true king, the child king, and brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to the messianic baby. Joy filled their hearts. Surely the joy ought to fill our hearts, the coming of the Christ. It's a steady search. It's a a satisfying search to find the one to whom your soul clings. And it is a search that's worth the wait. Verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You know what they say, all good things are worth waiting for, or something like that. In this text, the bride exhorts the audience, exhorts us, the reader, to wait with all patience. This bride speaks of lying in her bed, not their bed. And so the wedding night is yet to come. The consummation of the marriage won't take place until chapters 4 and 5. Marriage is a good thing, but 10-year-old girls shouldn't marry at the age of 10, even if they have been imagining and practicing their wedding ceremony for the last seven years. And so here, Israel anxiously anticipates the arrival of her groom until it's time And Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And children often ask their parents for days, perhaps months, when it is Christmas. Of course, we have countdown time. How many days till Christmas, Mom? How many days till Christmas, Dad? Well, four more months. Two months, one month, ten days. Well, it's not Christmas until it is. And it wasn't the fullness of time until it was. Children, don't you wait joyfully and excitedly when Mom is baking cookies? When can we have those cookies? And if mom were to pull those cookies out too soon, you're going to have a bunch of mush and dough that's, that's probably going to give you a worse stomach ache than having maybe a bunch of other cookies. They're too soft, you can't have them. Not yet, they're raw. But what if she takes the cookies out too late? 
Now they're burnt and, and hard, and they don't, just, they don't taste as good. Now they're too early or too late. You want it just right. Or children, when dad is deployed, when dad is away, maybe at work, maybe he's on a, a work trip, aren't you asking mom, how many days until dad comes back? Count down the days. Seven days, three months, what is it? You're anxiously anticipating dad's arrival. And your mom says, well, he's got an important job to do. He has to be away for now. But then when it's time for him to come, he will come. And for the birth of the kingly Messiah, it wasn't time until it was. And only God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit knew exactly when the time would be. Exactly when the fullness of time would come. And the church, dear ones, always longs for her royal groom to meet with her. The bride of Christ longs even now for the coming of the Messianic King. But we long differently. We yearn differently. We do not long as the Old Testament church had longed, a longing for the, for the fullness of time to come. No, the fullness of time had come. Christ did come. We don't long for that. As we reflect on Christ's first coming, his incarnation, we long not for his incarnation, not for a second incarnation, but for his second coming, for the final culminating coming to connect heaven and earth. And so we long, even now, for his spirit presence as we joyfully and excitedly await his certain second coming. What do we do in the meantime? We continue to worship. We continue to rejoice that Christ has come, that Christ will come again. And Christ, our Messianic King, meets our heart's longings each and every day. We don't have to wait for his second coming for him to meet our heart's longing. He comes to us by his spirit every day. In fact, we're called upon to come to him, to come boldly into the presence of God, to find the grace that we need. And he has ample provisions, eternal, infinite provisions. As we wake up, as we search him in the scriptures, as we seek him in our prayers, as we worship him with our brothers and sisters, Christ meets us. The royal groom is glad to satisfy the heart searchings of his lady in waiting. And so we turn to the, the king coming to his bride, fulfilling her earnest longings in verses 6 through 11. We see that Solomon is coming from the wilderness. Verse 6, what is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, and with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Her searching heart sees from a distance the king from the wilderness. Do you, do you notice the language here of the exodus in this verse? The language of wilderness. The rising columns of smoke pull imagery from the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that led Israel as she was wandering in the wilderness those 40 years. The bride's longing for her 
betrothed king hearkens to Israel's time in Egypt, longing for salvation. And can you smell Solomon, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and fragrant powders? This language is used for the fragrant anointing oil for the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 30. Surely our spiritual, by that I mean uppercase S, spiritual, our spiritual sense of smell is directed to the incarnate tabernacle, the one who tabernacled among us, as John says in John chapter 1, before whom the magi brought myrrh and frankincense, and upon whom the spirit of anointing was poured. The one who came out of the wilderness, as Matthew says, out of Egypt, the father called his son, displacing Herod with the true king of Israel, the only begotten of God. He came from the wilderness. He came for victory. Look at this in verse 7 and 8. Speaking of Solomon. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. As the bride of Solomon sees him coming out of the wilderness, not only can she smell him a mile away, and he smells pretty good, but he is decked out to the nines. The attention here is not on the bride, but on the bride's betrothed and on his groomsmen. Now, you wouldn't be the first female to like a man in uniform. I'm told it is appealing. Here is one in military garb. Here is one clothed in victory. He is surrounded by mighty men of valor, ceremonially dressed as victorious in battle. And so what does this mean for the bride-to-be? It means that she need not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, because her husband-to-be has got her firmly behind him, under his, under his shield. He is her protector, and she need not feel herself any longer to be a damsel in distress. She is safe because she is his. This bride looks at Solomon and sees what all women want in husbands. Husbands-to-be or you who are husbands I know sometimes it's hard to know what women want. But here, very clear answer. Women want godly protection. They want protection from physical harm. Protection from spiritual harm. And you are the strong, are to be the strong husband, provider, protector for her. That's one of the reasons God gave Adam to Eve. She supports him, and he protects her. Supposed to, anyways. And you, you who are beloved of the Lord, you who are joined to your husband, the Christ, as you look upon the Christ child this Advent season, you look to his protection and his victory that has been gained at the cross. He is victorious with his death. That means no longer does your sin get the better of you. 
That means no longer are you ripped by Satan. The power, the curse of your sin, the power of the kingdom of darkness has been broken because the king of light is victorious. And he demonstrated that victory on the cross. That's why he can say in John 16, to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. He came from the wilderness. He came for victory. He came with love and beauty. Look again here now, verses 9 and 10. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And so we turn our eyes again briefly to the regal Solomon of beauty. As Solomon's men march toward his bride, he is carried upon a litter, the enclosed box-like vehicle on poles that are supported by the mighty men's broad shoulders. With columns of smoke in the background and coming out of the wilderness, our eyes should recall the blessed Ark of the Covenant that would be supported by golden poles and carried by an elite group of men worthy to transport it from place to place as Israel moved about. Solomon comes representing the love of God, the beauty of his majesty, and the blessed presence of Emmanuel, God, with us. And in deeper and in enduring ways, the Son of God, the divine Ark of the Covenant, came to us, his long-expecting people. With love, he came for us. With love, he sought us. With love, he bought us by the precious blood of Christ. Now, every mama thinks that her son is her beautiful baby boy. I know my mom thought that. She gave me a song saying that. But Mary takes the cake here, doesn't she? For as she looked down at her nursing son, true and lasting love and beauty looked upward, didn't it? As, she reached, as he reached out his arms for his mama, he would one day stretch out his arms. With love, the beautiful Savior stretches out his arms on the cross for ugly sinners, and turns them into beautiful saints. What love is this? He comes from the wilderness. He comes for victory. He comes with love and beauty. He comes for beholding. Verse 11, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. It is the king that is in focus here. It isn't the bride, which is, of course, so different from how things are run today, isn't it? It would be odd, wouldn't it, if, if it was the groom who walked down the aisle? Now, I know that I much preferred to look at my bride than that she look at me or that others look at me. But here, the picture is different. All of our eyes are on Solomon. And the bride tells us they should stay there. Do you see that exhortation here? She commands us all, 
Not to behold herself. Not, look at me. Look how beautiful I am. No, look at him. Behold him. Do you see the king coming? Do you see how decked out he is? Do you see how strong he is? Do you see how beautiful the king is? Do you see the love with which he comes? Do you see him? Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. Behold him. Gaze as long as you can upon King Solomon. Oh, how beautiful, how powerful, how mighty, how gracious, how loving he is. Look at him. Gaze at his glorious crown with which his mother has crowned him on his wedding day. Surely Solomon wore that crown well for a while. It befitted him well for a time. But through this text, we are not meant to stare at Solomon. Yes, beautiful for a time. Yes, lovely for a time. Of course, he did have many other wives and concubines, which makes us to look elsewhere. Surely he isn't the Messiah. We are meant to behold the great husband king, the Christ. When Mary delivered her baby boy into the world, she brought the king to earth. She ushered him into this land of thorns and thistles, where devils would threaten to undo us, where the prince of the air seemed to be reigning without a hitch. And 33 years later, he was to put on a crown that befitted him best, the crown of thorns, which was his crown of glory. And do not think that there are two separate crowns. They are the same. He even refers to the cross as his glory. The crown fit his beautiful head best because the Son of God came to this earth to earn for himself the bride, all the elect. And he would pry her out of the snares of sin and Satan only one way, and that is for the glory of the cross. As we look back at the incarnation with anticipation, the new, we are meant now to look forward to the wedding feast in the future when the king comes to bring his bride home. Do you see? Yes, we are glad. Verse 11 doesn't direct us to our gladness, though. On the day of the gladness of his heart. Surely we are glad. Surely we rejoice that Christ has come. But it isn't just all of our gladness and he's really, he's just fine, he's indifferent. I guess I'm going to have him. You look at him, look how ugly they are, look how nasty they can be to me and to, to others. No, no, he is glad. As we reflected just in Sunday school, the Lord takes delight, he takes pleasure in his people. Jesus is glad at his wedding day. He looks forward to the time when we will come together finally and feast with him in person, with resurrected bodies, with him in his glorified body. He cannot wait for that to happen. 
He anticipates it with joy. He is glad to have bought you. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have come for you. But Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His heart was eternally full of joy to please his Father, but to bring you to himself. And so what do we say? Surely it's not, look at us. Look how great we are. Look at us walking down the aisle. No, no. Look at him. Look at the king. Look at Christ. Oh, daughters of heavenly Zion, look upon King Jesus with his beautiful crown of thorns. Oh, daughters of Zion, look upon him as you see him coming to glorify the wedding day. Daughters of Zion, look upon the royal son of the, on the day of the gladness of his heart. What a glad day the incarnation was. What a glad day Good Friday was. What a glad day Resurrection Sunday was. And oh, what a glad and glorious day shall be his return. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you so very much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your gladness of heart for us. We thank you for the coming Christ, the one who has come and who will come again. Oh Lord, we do not deserve this salvation. We are joyful because of it. We thank you for the grace upon grace that you have given to us. We depend upon it even now. Amen.